0: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew McKay, author of Seeking Jordan.
1: Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how I learned the truth about
0: death and the invisible universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org.
2: to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Thieves broke into Damien Memorial School the other night, making off with a couple of school vehicles and tools But what they didn't know is the man in charge at the school is a former FBI agent, and he isn't happy about it. Arnold La'anui has been on the job since July 1st and didn't think he'd have to tap his crime-fighting skills so soon. The theft comes just as classes are set to begin in two weeks. We talked to the Damien graduate class of 86 yesterday afternoon. Here's La'anui.
3: Unfortunately, we lost a couple of vans and a truck It was actually rather expensive. They were able to find where we had locked up our keys for our vehicles and got away with a couple of vans and a truck, as well as some, some of our tools and some of our yard equipment. But, you know, we're a small school, right? And this impacts our operations. We're trying to get ready for the school year. And so it, even though I'm very happy, of course, and my, I'm, I'm elated that nobody got hurt on the business and enterprise side of things, yeah, it stings. It impacts the way we do operations. It adds an incredible fiscal and time burden on everybody here, and it isn't something that's light or to be trifled with. So definitely a headache as we're getting ready to enter the 22-23 school year.
2: How does that impact your operations? I mean, with these staff vehicles? For the most part, there are passenger vans and
3: equipment that really helps our, our facilities and maintenance guys. We're surprisingly, uh, not necessarily a small campus, I would call call it the medium-sized campus. So there's a lot of ground and a lot of material to cover, you know, and so we just want to make sure that the campus is ready for these students when they come in. Will it affect our opening? No. Uh, well, we'll, well, we'll be fine, but it does give us a lot of extra burden as we try to make sure our campus is bright and shiny and ready to go on day one.
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a setback, but at least we can put an all-points bulletin out for these vehicles.
3: Right, right. right. (laughs) And as I understand it, I think we're already starting to get some recoveries. I think one of the vehicles had already been recovered, too. The police department already found one. So, yeah, things will be fine.
2: But the thieves better know they've got a former FBI agent at the helm. Right. (laughs)
3: Right, yeah, so definitely bringing a different eye about student health and safety that I think anyone who's worked at the health and safety arena would obviously bring and lend their subject matter expertise. So yeah, there are some areas in which we can do some improvement there that uh, my trained eye I think will be lending some insight on. So we've already started to move in that direction.
2: So how's it been coming back to the school since you're an alum? I
3: I love Damien, absolutely love it. I am beyond thrilled. It is one of the best blessings I've ever received to actually come back home to my campus. You know, I was just looking at the Honolulu Magazine, and right in the front, the very first article in the annual private school guide that they published, which just literally got published I think this month, it talks about faculty members who return back to their campuses to teach both in the public and in private schools. Man, there's nothing that beats that sensation. You know, it's such an eerie feeling walking back on campus, and I've got very vivid memories of, you know, where I, when I was in high school, met the young lady who would become my wife, where my best friends and the uncles to all my children all kind of hung out. So being back in this role, in this capacity, is just a really special time. I'm hoping to make it a special time for both Damon and for myself.
2: HPR's host, Derek Balama, is an alum also, and he proudly told me this morning, I learned how to, to tie a, a tie because that was our <laughs> uniform there.
3: Yeah, yeah. We, we learned to dress for success very early on this campus. That is true.
2: And so he wanted to know, are the ties still in place? Because I know there was a transition at some point, I think. You changed the uniform.
3: Right. right. So we're actually having some discussion about that uh, right now, believe it or not, about the way our students look and the, the image that we want to project outward. Is, is it a daily part of our uniform? It is not anymore a daily part of their uniform. Is it still a robust part of what our students wear and how they look at different times uh, throughout the academic year? Yes, it is. The ties have not gone away, not by any means. And we're always in the process of of trying to refine the look of our students to reflect both the spirit of our campus and the image we want to project forward. But we also want to make the learning environment as comfortable for our students as possible one of the things we learn is that, you know, the environment plays a lot into how you learn. So there is a balancing point there where student comfort, especially in beautiful, warm Hawaii, uh, can balance against the image we want to project and the look of the school that we want to hold on to.
2: Well, you know, I'm sure a lot has changed since Derek Malama went there. You know, besides (laughs) the daily ties, you know, you now have girls. So it's not just an all-boys school and high school. Yes,
3: yes. For me, that has been one of the most obvious changes being back on campus. But all truth be told, I've got two girls and a boy that I've raised on my own, all of whom are really high-performing, high-achieving young people. They're all young adults now, but doing really well. So as a dad and as an uncle, I think I can deliver a lot of insight and make that transition rather smoothly. And you know, since you mentioned girls, one of the things I'm the most concerned about on our campus is just making sure that the environment is as smooth as possible for anybody who comes on campus, whether they're male or female. I'm a huge believer in having uh, equitable opportunity and actually just yesterday spoke with coaches about balancing opportunity for as many of our students as possible. So I wholly endorse, as does the whole gaming community, wholly endorse this transition, which occurred, believe it or not, 10 years ago now. So we've had young ladies on our campus for a decade.
2: Wow, that is hard to believe. I mean, I remember when Iolani let girls in for the first time, right? you know, but schools have to do what they have to do and they transform themselves. Full disclosure, I went to a Catholic all-girls school and they eventually allowed boys in as well. So change is change. (laughs) That's right. I know earlier this year we did a story about how Catholic school enrollment, you know, was up all over the country. It was the largest increase in 50 years. Yeah. Uh, And this pandemic, I know, really helped to, I guess, put things into focus for families you know. So, right. so talk about you know I guess the vision for Damien.
3: I think the overarching vision right now and I think for many institutions the DOE included is trying to optimize the opportunities that are now available as a result of COVID. You know when COVID hit uh, it really kind of leveled a lot of infrastructure a lot of processes. The most obvious of course for our schools is, is the rapid uh, and immediate transition into online learning but You know, stepping back now and we're two plus years into the pandemic, looking at the opportunities that are available. This is a wonderful time for us here at Damien. You know, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to return back to our origin and our roots. This year marks the 60th year from when we opened up our, our doors back in 1962. And looking back over all those years, harvesting all the wonderful lessons that we have. I think Damien's really going to be poised for a wonderful school year and the trajectory I think we want to set for ourselves going forward is going to be a return to some really simple tenets that will help us to adapt and evolve going forward. In particular, one of the ideas I'd like to ensure that we do, and it sounds very simple, there's a lot of sophistication and nuance in it, but really at, at this core what Damien does really well is introduce great students to great colleges and universities. And Damian has always had a wonderful tradition of being a fantastic prep academy. And with all the lessons that we've learned through COVID and all the lessons we learned over the past 60 years, we're going to harvest the best of that and really smooth the glide path and trajectory for our students as they make their way to college.
2: I know that you have been doing lots of work with our public schools and Mm -hmm. did a lot with the current school superintendent, Keith Hayashi, when he was at Waipago. Yeah, great guy. So you're both in positions to make changes in Hawaii with our, our young people's education. My entrance
3: into the public school started, believe it or not, almost 20 years ago. Way back in the day, at the dawn of Web 2.0, when smartphones started showing up, I was on a very young cyber squad and had gotten really heavily involved in looking at ways of reaching out to students in hopes of mitigating what was then brand new crimes, you know, things we never even thought about, issues and terms like sexting. Sexting wasn't even a term back then, but really quickly we saw really unique behaviors like cyberbullying. That wasn't even a term back then. But watching these behaviors evolve in young people, you know, I was really fortunate to get with a really great group of individuals in an organization called InfraGuard. And together we developed an outreach program that really it got national recognition. It was a, a wonderful effort to teach students through another new technology that was making its way forward, videos, and basically using videography as a way of developing public service announcements to educate other teens about what some of the hazards and social and criminal concerns were about the Internet. That event, the Internet Safety Awards, was really successful. And part of the reason it was successful is because it was a wonderful partnership. It was a partnership between government and private industry, but it was also a partnership amongst public and private schools as the contest was opened up to all schools. So that effort really showed me a lot about how important partnership was. Flash forward 10 more years, and I'm working with Hitayashi when he was the principal at Waipawa High School, and one of the ideas I posed to him uh, was this uh, concept of developing a, a law and justice academy for the school and developing some wonderful curricula that would entail partnership amongst different high schools to include public and private high schools. And back in those days, it was really fun to teach at Sacred Hearts, for example, at Farrington High School and at Waipawa High School and have those students blend their curricula so that they're working together. And truth be told, shortly after I got this appointment and shortly after Keith got his, we're both texting each other and I'm mentioning to him you know, that, hey, you know, the, the same philosophies still apply. I would love to partner with everyone because ultimately, you know, Hawaii is still a, a very small community. Whether you go to a public private school, ultimately all of these young people, our appeal, eventually flow into the same sea. They all work together regardless of where you went to school. So it only benefits our students if they have a chance to partner with each other in trying to solve some of these really unique problems that are showing their face in the modern world today.
2: Well, I'm sure just your experience with the uh FBI, I mean, that helps to bring a real sense of the risk and the threats that are out there to our young people, you know, and how we've got to be able to, to navigate in that world and, and get ahead of these things and thrive.
3: Yeah, as you know, the world has shifted so quickly, right? It's become far more digital. It's become far more global. Uh, the economy, of course, is in a constant state of flux, and the one commonality that everyone agrees th- that should be a solution to all of these really complex problems is quality education. Hence, it's always on the forefront of everyone's mind. Rarely a day goes by when educational issues in some way, shape, or form don't make their way into the news. And so the one thing that Damien certainly wants to do, and is really quite, quite well poised to do, is to provide a really high-value education at an affordable price. It's something that Damien at the very beginning, when it was first founded, really had at the forefront of its mission, You know, reaching out to the more marginalized sector of our community, the fiscally and economically disenfranchised, in order to help them find their way to a really high-quality education so that they can elevate the standard and quality of their life. Damien still holds and abides really true to that philosophy. It's going to be a cornerstone of my administration at the time that I'll be back on campus here at Damien. Little side story, I'm still incredibly close to a wonderful woman by the name of Sister James Therese who's been an inspiration in my life. She inspired me to become an FBI agent. The moment I got this appointment, I reached out to her for more guidance, and she's a longtime educator. But back in the early days as a young FBI agent, what I would do is when I'd go ahead and visit her, I'd take her flowers or something along those lines and What I'd always do is I'd take a gift card, throw it into a, a note card, along with all the clippings of all the cases I had worked on that year. And I'd bring her a note that always said the same thing. This isn't me working. This is you working through me working. And I would visit with her, catch up with her over the course of the year. You know, COVID stopped a couple of those visits, but I was really grateful that uh, once the things settled down, I was able to kind of pay and a visit last year. I saw it this year again, of course, for Teacher Appreciation Week. But yeah, the teachers, you know, farm the future. Teaching is so important. They don't look at reaping fruit today. They look at planting seeds for tomorrow. That takes a really special person to see that far ahead. Sister James was one of those persons. And I think for everybody out there, whether it's a coach or whether it was somebody you had in class, we all know who our favorite teacher was. Yeah, we should all like honor them, and it doesn't hurt to pay them uh, a little visit or send them a bouquet of flowers at the beginning of the school year. That always helps, too.
2: And that was Arnold a former FBI agent, now president of Damien Memorial School. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii we have an interview with the local creator of Punky Aloha Studio coming up uh, later in the show. So today we're testing your knowledge of another notable artist with ties to Hawaii, the late Margaret Keane. She was born in 1927 in Tennessee and is best known for her paintings of subjects with big eyes. In 1957, her husband Walter Keene began selling her paintings as his own. She there became aware of the deception but remained silent for years uh, out of fear of retribution. The Paintings uh, became some of the most popular and commercially successful pieces of uh, the 1960s. She eventually divorced Walter in 1964 and then moved to Honolulu. In 1970, Margaret finally revealed the truth, and after suing her ex-husband in 1986, a federal court legally recognized her authorship of the artwork. The story was so compelling, it inspired a 2014 film. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of that movie? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
0: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nereid Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. Nereidhawaii.com.
2: Our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat this morning has the latest problems to come to light with Honolulu's rail project. Surprise, surprise, it has to do with cracks in the guideways columns. Uh, Marcel Henri joins us today. Uh, so what can you tell us?
1: Well, hey, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Yes. And yeah, this is the latest issue to surface. It came up in yesterday's HART board meeting. Uh, HART CEO, Lori Kahikina, was delivering her report, and she mentioned it's it's early on, but this is a uh, potentially significant problem that could affect rail operations, rail uh, the the engineering even of the uh, of of the guideway and the stations. Basically, these slim cracks that crews have known about for years, but only during recent inspections. Have they noticed growth uh, that is causing some concern in these in these cracks, and they, they are specifically affecting what's known as the hammerhead piers? So, if you can kind of picture, you know, we have this elevated guideway, and then the stations on the west side so far that have been built. Um, there are specific columns with these extra long piers; they're kind of shaped like a T, and that is where they're finding these very slim cracks. That are now uh, – they're, they're called shear cracks apparently. And when they start forming in this diagonal direction, that can be a concern. And the, the contractors for the city were the first ones to identify the problem. And apparently they have said that they're advising that no passengers be allowed in those stations until they and all the people who are now kind of you know honing in on this issue, uh, until they have a better grasp of what's going on.
2: Did they let on which stations they are talking about exactly?
1: So what they have said is that it is affecting seven stations on the west side. So that's the within the first 10 miles, of uh, the rail uh, line, you know, which is supposed to be as, as long as 20 if it makes it to Ala Moana. We're talking between uh, East Kapolei, uh, the, you know, the fields east of Kapolei to Aloha Stadium. It is seven of the stations, seven of the nine stations along those stretch, that stretch of, of the route. Hart declined to say yesterday after the meeting which of the seven ones it is, but it's basically seven of those nine.
2: It's interesting because I've been asking, you know, when we're going to have another community uh, day uh, out there uh, on the route, um, and haven't heard uh, yet when that's going to be. But I'm wondering if this is something to to do with, um, you know, that decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could. It's it, part of what came up in in the discussion on this is that this could certainly impact their plans for the interim opening. And, you know, there's still a lot that needs to be answered, but they're wondering how this might affect the, uh, the train testing and particularly that 90-day uh, testing uh, uh, period that has to happen without any kind of a hitch before they can uh, open into passenger service. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of questions as to what this means, but they certainly are hinting that, that this could delay that interim opening even further.
2: Did they give any idea as to when they're going to have, you know, uh, the thumbs up or down on whether they can allow people on that, um, you know, in those areas?
1: Not exactly. Uh, Basically, what Lori said yesterday in in her briefing is that, you know, they've they've got you've got heart. In the room, you've got the city in the room because the city is the one that's taking over passenger service and assuming control of the first half uh, shortly, and all of their consultants as well as uh, engineers of record. Now, uh, Kiwit and uh, HNTB; those are the contractors that built these columns back in 2014. So apparently, they've we've got all these people in the gr- on the ground now, and they are going to work on this situation over the next couple of weeks. Uh, apparently, share all sorts of documentation and and see what everybody knows, and hopefully have more to report after the next couple of weeks as to you know what what the plan is going forward, how severe this is, what the implications are, and what they need to do to fix however big of a problem this is.
2: Yeah, I mean safety's a biggie, <laughs> uh, you know. So yeah, we want to see how these cracks are uh, are going to affect um, you know the timetable.
1: Right, and and the city uh, transportation director Roger Morton mentioned yesterday. He was very disappointed to hear what's happening, but you know he stressed that obviously safety is the number one concern here, uh, and that they're going to make sure that, that you know they they uh, sufficiently address this before anybody starts riding these trains. So,
2: right. Yeah. So the yeah, the idea that yeah that the transfer of the of the trains uh over to the city uh you know they were hoping to do that by the end of the year then yeah that could get pushed into the beginning of 2023 well we'll have Easily, to see yeah. won't we <laughs> yep. thanks thanks so much marcel thanks catherine we've been talking to a reporter marcel Henri with today's reality check you can uh, read the full story on the rails latest problems uh, by going to civilbeat.org
0: support for H.P.R. comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available, magnolia-hawaii.com. This week on Science Friday, the Webb Telescope gives us a new view of the cosmos Carl Sagan would have loved. There are billions of galaxies with billions of stars and we're getting our first glimpse. We're looking back more than 13 billion years. The Cosmic Slideshow on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at one.
2: Well, the state has no time to waste if it wants to meet its climate goals. That's why many are calling the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling in the West Virginia versus EPA a head-scratcher. It contends that the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the broad authority to regulate carbon emissions without a specific mandate from Congress. What could this mean for the long- and short-term effect on the climate change fight? Does the Supreme Court have a judicial veto over the powers of federal agencies, Deputy Solicitor uh, General uh, Ewan Rayner joined the conversation, Savannah Harriman-Pote, in studio to walk us through the case.
4: It's a little bit of a strange case. Essentially, at issue in the case is a 2015 Obama-era rule issued by the Environmental Protection Agency. So what that rule tried to do, it it was issued under the, the Clean Air Act, the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Now, what the rule tried to do is to essentially, on an industry-wide basis, move uh, electricity-generating power plants away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy. And the way it did that, there was a couple of different things. F- fossil fuel fired power plants could either reduce their own energy production capacity or they could subsidize clean energy plants. So th- there was a little bit of a departure from the sort of bread and butter EPA regulations which usually are limited more to uh, just regulating the amount of emissions that, that come from a plant. It's not not completely unprecedented but um, uh, slightly, slightly uh, unusual in that regard. But what is I think particularly confusing and particularly strange about this case is that that 2015, is, it was called the, the Clean Power Plan. And that that plan never actually went into effect. And this is one of the unique things about this case. The reason it never went into effect was because um, I I believe the very day it was issued by the EPA, it was challenged in court. And then it was ultimately stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, before a decision on that uh, was ultimately made, there was a change in administration. Um, Obama was replaced by President Trump. And the EPA, under President Trump, uh, decided to repeal the Clean Power Plan. Now, when that happened, a, a different group of states from the states that had initially uh, challenged the Clean Power Plan then intervened, arguing that uh, the EPA was wrong to repeal the Clean Power Plan. And that group of states actually included Hawaii. Now, ultimately, in that case, the Code of Appeals for the District of Columbia, it ruled that Uh, It agreed with the group of states that included Hawaii and ruled that, yes, it was a mistake for the EPA. The EPA was wrong to repeal the Clean Power Plan. It was based on a mistaken reading of the Clean Air Act. The the weird thing, though, is that in the interim, there had been, by the time this decision came out, there had been another change in administration, and then Joe Biden had taken over from President Trump. And when, uh, under the Biden administration, the EPA decided, well, you know, we have decided we're not going to, we're not gonna go with the Obama Clean Power Plan. We're going to, we, we don't want to enforce that, we don't want to implement it, we want to come up with our own new plan. So they asked the, the Court of Appeals, the District of Columbia, to not put its decision into effect. Um, so that court then stayed that decision. But I think kind of seeing the writing on the wall as to what kind of plan the EPA wanted to issue, um, that it would likely be based something like the Clean Power Plan, that original group of states that included West Virginia, they petitioned to the US Supreme Court to review the the District of Columbia Court of Appeals decision and to review whether the EPA actually had authority to, uh, to issue the Clean Power Plan, even though it had never gone into effect. And so at the end of that, we end up with this weird situation where the US Supreme Court is taking a case and ruling on an EPA rule which never went into effect and which the EPA said it had no intent to put into effect and no intent to enforce.
5: Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court majority opinion contends that the EPA stepped outside the bounds of its authority. What are the implications of that decision? Does the Supreme Court have a judicial veto, so to speak, over the powers of federal agencies?
4: I think there are a lot of implications to that and I think one of the reasons is that the way the, the Supreme Court went about its analysis of the statute in this case. Was It went through this doctrine it called the major question doctrine. And so it wasn't, at least for the majority, This was a 6-3 decision, and it was very much along ideological lines. So the conservative majority, the six justices, they didn't feel that it was a straightforward case of statutory interpretation. What they determined was that the EPA rule, the Clean Power Plan, they said because it attempts to answer a question of vast political and economic significance, then there had to be a clear statement by Congress that it was authorizing the specific rule, the specific action the EPA was trying to take. That's a little bit different from how a court would usually analyze a question of whether an agency has authorization. And actually, in in the dissenting opinion, Justice Kagan went through what she felt was the proper analysis. And to her, it was just a question of, you know, the statutory language in the Clean Air Act says EPA can develop a system, and it has to be the best system for emissions reduction. She said, this is a system. The EPA said it's the best system for the emissions reduction based on the criteria they have to evaluate, case closed, essentially. I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially uh, how she felt the analysis should go. But the conservative majority, they they went this step further by saying because they think this had such uh, political and economic significance, then there had to be a really clear statement from Congress. And yeah, I, I think it's right to say that it would seem to give sort of a power of veto, really, over any big, bold, or new type of agency action. You know, the EPA is trying to do something about climate change here, which is a big problem, and it requires big solutions, really. And but because you know it's it's a big question with a big solution, the the Supreme Court majority said the EPA wasn't authorized to answer it.
5: Mm, and and moving forward, do you think that this major questions doctrine will become more common in the Supreme Court decisions?
4: Yes, I think so. I do think this is something we're going to see more of. And, you know, just for example, next term, there's a there's a Clean Water Act case coming up before the Supreme Court, which is set for argument in October, I believe. It's not, um, you know, it's not really the, exactly the same kind of question that this West Virginia case raised, but it's it's another opportunity for the court to chip away at uh the rulemaking authority of the EPA. In a, in another case,
5: this major questions doctrine. Where does that come from?
4: So that's the that's another interesting question. And it's actually it's it's a judicial made policy. I mean it's not um, it's not in, it's not in the Constitution. I mean you know that there are I believe in um, Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion. He he attempts to draw some support for it from. Certain constitutional provisions, but there's really nothing specific about this in the constitution, and and it's not you know they're not drawing from anything really textual, which is actually another in, interesting thing about the 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 way the conservative majority makes these decisions. Because, and I think both um, Justice Kagan and, and Justice Ginsburg, when she was still here, um, both pointed out you know the fact that this this majority seems to be uh, textualists when it suits them to be, which which you know they. In many cases, you know, and Roe v. Wade is a good example where they're reading the Constitution, and if they don't see the specific grant of authority, or they don't see the specific language there, then there's there's no authority, They'll, or you know, that's that's a case closed for them. It, it is it's a little bit concerning, I think, that the that the majority that's on the court now um, is willing to kind of to be textualist when it when it suits them, and and then to rely on these. Um, Court made non-textual doctrines when it when it suits them in other cases.
5: Hmm. West Virginia versus EPA was looking at the EPA's authority in regulating carbon emissions from coal-fired plants, which are the largest stationary source of carbon emissions in the United States. Right. However, in Hawaii, we only have one coal-fired plant, and it's set to shutter operations this coming September. What are the implications for Hawaii? in this case? And why has our attorney general's office chosen to get involved?
4: The implications, you know, as a a sort of immediate practical matter, the implications, I guess, are are fairly limited. There's a a number of reasons for that. I mean, one, Hawaii already has a statutory scheme in place, which not exactly like uh, the Clean Power Plan, but does something similar in that it it's a, an attempt to try and transition the state from away from um, you know, fossil fuels towards clean energy. And so Hawaii's, you know, it's been one of the more, uh, the states have set a more ambitious target. It's, um, you know, the target is 100% renewable sources by 2045. Um, and many other states have done that too. But I mean, I think in terms of uh, Hawaii getting involved, I mean, the, the problem with when you're talking about air pollution and in particular climate change and greenhouse gases they they don't respect state boundaries so i mean whatever hawaii does hawaii's a, a small state whatever hawaii you know we could we can get to 100% renewable energy production there's still going it's it's only going to have a very small impact on climate change and so um, you know we feel that it's important for the EPA to be able to regulate this on a nationwide scale because really that's the only way that uh, there's really going to be a, a truly significant impact on greenhouse gas emissions and, uh, and climate change if, if there can be a sort of um, unified nationwide approach.
2: That was Deputy Solicitor General Ewan Rayner speaking with the Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about the implications of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew the name of the 2014 film based on the life of the late Margaret Keene. Keene was known for her big eyes, paintings of women, children, and animals in oil or mixed media. Her fascination with eyes began as a child after her eardrum was permanently damaged during an operation. Unable to hear properly, she learned to watch the eyes of the person talking to her to understand them. In the 1960s, her paintings, sold by her then-husband as his own, became popular, and she was commissioned for portraits by some of the biggest celebrities at the time. Movie director Tim Burton, best known for films Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, is a keen art collector. In 2014, he directed a biographical film about her starring uh, Amy Adams, titled Big Eyes, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. Keene moved to Honolulu in 1966 and lived here uh, lived here, for uh, 25 years before moving to California. She passed away last month at the age of 94. And congrats to our winner today, Michelle from Kaka'ako. You got it right. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. <music>
0: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
2: On the next fresh air, musician and singer Jeff Muldauer. His new album called His Last Letter features folk, blues, and jazz songs performed with classical and jazz musicians. We'll feature our 2009 interview with him in which he sang songs that influenced him. Early in his career, he was part of the Jim Queskin Jug Band. Join us.
0: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at ProtectoahuWater.org.
2: Local artist Char Tuiasoa has just published her first children's book. It's titled... Punky Aloha. It brings readers into the world of a little Polynesian girl whose adventure in search of fresh butter for her grandmother's banana bread is filled with surprising twists and turns. With the help of magic sunglasses, Punky learns to overcome her shyness and make new friends along the way. The conversation Zillian Sang sat down with the Windward-based illustrator in her studios.
6: The story was really based off of me. What would I have wanted to read as a child? I mean, consider I've been wanting to make a children's book probably since I was a kid, you know? So I was thinking like, what character would I wanna see? And I really would like to relate to a girl who looked like me, who liked to ride her skateboard and was adventurous. And I also was extremely shy. That's like long gone now. I mean, you can't get me to stop talking, but when I was a kid, I was painfully shy. And I kind of wanted to see how she dealt with her shyness how did she reconcile her adventurous personality but so afraid of the outside world still, you know? And I wanted it to be an adventure story because I love adventure stories. I love world building. I love going on adventures. And to me, the cutest thing about kids is is they're so small. So her adventure from point A to point B in reality is tiny. But to her little world, it's just like going through the jungles and meeting these – Creatures, You know, I mean, to me, that is just so magical. And I love living in that world.
7: Punky Aloha based on you, I know. <laughs>
6: yeah. But did you have a tutu who did awesome banana bread? Yeah, actually. So the grandma character is based on both of my grandparents. My grandma, Joan, our special connection to her, it was her baking and her love for butter. And the conversations our families would have together about... <laughs> butter and, you know, banana And So that was my way of honoring her. And then my grandma Longy, the way she sort of was the best friend to all the grandchildren, the nurturer to all the grandchildren, and what she looked like, you know. When some of my cousins saw the book, they said, was that grandma Longy? And I was like, you know it. You can't mistake those feet and those legs. So I wanted to find a way to honor both of them. And all the characters, they're kind of like mixes of various people in my life. Yeah. And and people that you know.
7: Punky Aloha's got spunk. She's adorable. Really drawn into her affinity for being kind, for sharing Aloha. She has this mantra. How did you come on that?
6: Well, I, I kind of knew too and thinking about like what kind of a value do I want to share with the world. This is my first time making a book, and this is like, you know, what's a great value to share? And I think aloha is something that it's a well-known value here for us. But it's a value that I I think that a lot of people can relate to, or if they can't relate to, they can learn from it, right? I give you, you give me. It's a communal thing. It's something that we all grow together, right? It's, It's so much more than just hello and goodbye. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to have this little girl meet her new friends and and that's how she does it. She goes in and she offers something to them to help them and she doesn't know that they're going to give something back but they end up giving her something back that helps her on her next quest. So, wow, what a fun little adventure she's going to be going on just by being kind to everybody and where does that lead her? And I really wanted to express the world the way that Punky would see it the way that a child sees it. And I already do very simplified sort of graphics and I have like flat shapes, bold colors. That's something I utilize. And from a kid's point of view, everything is much more exaggerated and it's bigger and it's brighter. And I really wanted the reader to look at the world the way that Punky looks at the world, right? Mm -hmm. So we are all Children, when we're reading this book, we're on that adventure with her. We're, you know, back to being cakey again. So
7: for you, sounds like you were always artistic. And growing up, was it something that you had mentors for who were like, hey, Shar, this is, this is a talent you <laughs> yeah. have. Continue to pursue it. What was it like? What grade was it for you? that well, really?
6: you know, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be an artist. I've always wanted to be an illustrator, really, like specifically. My mom also studied illustration when I was a kid. She also studied at Winward Community College. She didn't have a babysitter, so she would kind of drag us along with her to her classes. And her teacher, Snowden Hodges, was awesome. And he would set us up in the corner with crayons and paper, and we would just draw. And then when I went off to college, Winward Community College, he was my teacher. He was still teaching there. It was incredible, you know, we walk in and he's like, how's your mom doing? <laughs> so I think because I was so young when we were taking those art classes surrounded by adults studying art, it kind of made me look at art differently. Like it didn't look at it as like this childish thing you do. This is something that adults did and they're very serious about it. So this is a viable option, I think. So I just grew up always sketching. I wanted to do comics. I wanted to do sequential art as a kid wanted to be, like, the next Bill Watterson. And when I got into college, to Winworth Community College, I started studying more traditional art and oil painting, charcoal, figure drawing. And eventually I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready to pursue this, like, at the art school, private art school level. And, yeah, I I made the move. I went to Laguna College of Art and Design, and that's where I got my BFA in illustration.
7: Mm. But that's also... Jumping off of the rock. I mean, yeah. you're no longer in your Kailua yes, home. I know.
6: And I never thought I would leave. I was never one to be like, oh, you know, like, I'm so claustrophobic here. I need to get away. I was always the one in my whole family. Like, I'm never leaving. Hawaii is my home. I'm never going. There's nothing out there for me. I have everything I need right here, you know. But I thought, like, well, wouldn't it be nice to allow myself that experience going to a really great art school, and then see what I can do with it, come back home and apply it to my life here. Mm -hmm.
7: Sounds like you were maturing. There was a sense of, for professional level courses, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. would see going away to gain those skills.
6: Yeah, yeah, and it was a really great experience. And of course, I think like a lot of people that leave, it helps you appreciate home even more you know more than I thought I could and you know now I'm home for good
7: (laughs) (laughs) but you made it where you can stay home for good yeah
6: (laughs) you know it's not easy to survive here but it is possible it is possible to dream whatever job you want to do and make it happen for you here in home you don't have to leave Mm -hmm. to quote-unquote make it you know
7: very exciting to hear about the fact though that you picked up a two-book contract from a, yes. a wonderful publishing company.
6: Yes, HarperCollins. absolutely love them. How did that happen? Really, really fortunate. The editor, Luana, who is just a remarkable woman, she found my art on Instagram, and she emailed me and just said, Hey, have you ever thought about writing a children's book? And I said, funny you ask. <laughs> I thought it was being scammed because, you know... You never think one of the publishers, like from the big five, it's not super easy to get in there, but you know, I think they're looking though. They're looking for underrepresented voices and I was really fortunate that she saw something in me and it was the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me.
7: (laughs) That is wonderful to know that your, your work is out there on that platform. We also live in a day and age too where it's no longer just in your studio where you have to physically or go to a gallery yeah. and look at work. You can actually yeah. you're just instantaneous through the World Wide Web. You can
6: It's trans- a different transfer. world out there. Mm-hmm. For for freelancers, you know, back in the day, before my time, but my professors would talk about this endlessly, is that you have your physical portfolio of your twelve best pieces and you walk on foot and cold call art directors at marketing agencies and whatnot and hope for a callback. And you send out postcards of your work to art directors and hope for the best. And that is still totally something you can do, but you can also utilize the free marketing from social media. I utilize that as much as I can, you know? it's It reaches so many eyes. It's been a really great opportunity to, to meet and network with other artists,
7: mm-hmm. yeah. So you're based here in Hawaii, but your work is out there. Just speak to your clients, name some.
6: In Hawaii, which is, of course, where I have to thank my community and love on my community first, because if it wasn't for the jobs I was offered here, I wouldn't have been able to get noticed from other, I wouldn't have had the portfolio for other people to want to work with me. So here I've done work with Hawaii Magazine, Hawaii Business Magazine, Honolulu Magazine, Manoa Chocolate, Foodland, we have another bag coming out again, HPR. (laughs) And then um, I've also worked with companies like AT&T and Amazon Prime, Sephora, Apple, Disney, Pixar, Hasbro. Um, I've been really, really fortunate to be able to work with companies I had only dreamed of working with. And it's been really great working with them, allows me to continue to work with my community here, which is where my heart lies.
7: Mm -hmm. Right. What would you tell somebody who is maybe, you know, looking, what sort of wisdom could you just like kind of share to a listener out there, feeling inspired? What would you tell them?
6: Well, if you're thinking that visual art is something you're interested in or maybe you're already doing it, a, do it every day, right? Draw every day, create every day, or write every day. That's, that's step number one. Make sure you really enjoy doing it because you're gonna do it a lot. <laughs> you're gonna spend day and night drawing. And if you're actually actively already drawing and you're looking to start working as a freelancer, my advice in the very beginning is to take on any job that comes your way, at the very beginning at least. Like when I started, I was doing flyers for my cousin's hula company. I was doing business cards for my friend's husbands. You know what I mean? You start anywhere and this just helps build your confidence. This helps you sort of prepare yourself. I think it's really important to greet opportunity with preparation. And what else are you working on now, project-wise? Okay, well, I just collaborated with Oloha Island Mart and Aloha Gas to create a reusable bag, and all proceeds are being donated to Waimanalo Huilimu.
7: Do you find yourself gravitating towards certain
6: products that really resonate? You know, it's so funny, I feel like I've um, sort of become the tote bag girl. <laughs> Maybe it's just because it's easier, and, and it's something that you can use. Personally, have tons of tote bags, you know, they're great. But I'm happy to see my artwork on anything living and breathing and being utilized in the real world. I think that's always a thrill from going from someone who creates on a flat screen or a flat surface and then seeing it kind of existing and being used. It feels amazing. That was local
2: illustrator Shar Tuiasoa talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Tuiasoa's debut children's book, Punky Aloha, is published by Harper Kids. She tells us that she's already written the storyline for Punky Aloha's next adventure, inspired by the music of the Ka'au Crater Boys and the Waikiki Shell. She will be at the Honolulu Museum of Art for a book signing event this Sunday. We'll share links on our page at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. <laughs> is it for this aloha friday coming up next week we learn about emergency response as part of the RIMPAC military exercises what do you think about all the war games Call or talk back line that's 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr or write to us at talkback at You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Polk, Russell SubiONO, and Lillian Song. Our intern is Emily Tom. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.